Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast with Oslo Business Forum, where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Ringnas, and today we'll be talking about how to lead in the disruptive age, disrupting the disruptors, and the biggest challenges managers face today. We are talking to Kostas Markides, Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship and Faculty Director for Executive Education at the London Business School. A graduate of Harvard Business School and Boston University, he is considered one of the world's leading experts in the area of business strategy and strategic innovation and has appeared several times on the Thinker's 50 list of the world's top management gurus. He is the author of several best-selling books, including All the Right Moves, Fast Second, and Game-Changing Strategies. Thank you so much for joining us, Kostas. It's a pleasure. After an introduction like that, I can't wait to hear what I have to say. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're faculty director for executive education at LBS. Um, I'm sure you meet with and lecture hundreds of executives every single year. When they enter your lectures and you proceed with discussions, what are the common themes and questions that they have for you? Well, it's different now from 30 years ago when I started, and it obviously reflects the fact that uh, they've faced different managerial and leadership challenges. But the kind of issues that are really high on the agenda of senior executives these days, one will be disruption, uh, whatever that means for their own organization, and how do we respond to disruption. The other has to do about their own uh, leadership style. How do I need to change as a leader now in today's world to manage people? And the third, uh, I would say, is about cultural transformation. Uh, Every company, no matter their size or origin, uh, they have to worry about uh, how do I transform my organization culturally to be ready for all the disruptions that are going to hit it. Cultural change. So not so much technology or? No. In fact, it's a big myth this one. Everybody talks about digital disruption and they associate that with technology. And I don't think technology is the issue. Well, it is an issue in the sense that, yeah, what comes about is a lot of new technologies that we need to think about. But the biggest problem for companies is not which technology should I adopt and how and things like that. That's easy. It's, it's a strategic decision. You sit down with your board, you do, you decide, you make your investments and you get on with life. But the, the real issue is uh, once you've made the those strategic decisions, how do you prepare the people inside the organization for whatever you've decided to do? And how not only do you prepare them, how do you change them from what what they are doing now to what they need to do, given the changes you're about to introduce at the strategic level? Mm. So the cultural challenge, in my opinion, is far, far bigger of a challenge than deciding at a strategic level what digital technologies to adopt. That seems to be a common theme, actually, amongst a lot of the people that I interview. But still, I mean, it's not really practiced. People do obsess with which technology to implement, and it's not that much focus on culture. But I do want to talk a little bit about strategy Mm. and especially discuss how established companies respond to the invasion of disruptive business models in their industry. I have a background in media, Mm. uh, and I know the challenges that Mm. media houses face globally due to the online distribution of news through Mm. social media platforms and other platforms. And during the research for one of your books, you looked at 150 traditional responses from established firms and found that the most successful way to respond to these challenges is by 
disrupting the disruptor. Instead of trying to outdo what a competitor does, successful companies look at the disruptor and figure out how to disrupt them. Now, this sounds easy enough, but it (laughs) sounds incredibly hard in practice. Now, since I have a background in media, it would be really interesting if you could give an example of how traditional media houses should be thinking about this and what it takes organizations to succeed with a strategy like that. First, I think it's very, very important that you frame the question in terms of disruptive business models. I say that because one of the biggest problems we face uh, with disruption is lack of clarity. People come and say, how should I respond to disruption? Well, I don't know the answer to that because how you should respond depends on the disruption you're facing. For some industries, for some companies, the disruption may be a disruptive business model. For others, it may be a new technology like blockchain. For others, it may be the fact that I have now the millennia and the employees and the disruptive way of managing employees. And for others, it may be the consumer. So the point is, I cannot give advice to people how to respond to disruption until they clearly and precisely tell me what disruption are you facing. It's like going to the doctor and saying to the doctor, I don't feel too well, what should I do? And the doctor immediately prescribes aspirin to you. I would be worried if I was a patient because how could the doctor prescribe the medicine if they don't know what my disease is? It's the same with disruption. Disruption is not one thing. There are many, many things that can disrupt you. Be precise what disruption is facing you and then I can talk about what you need to do. So thank you for being very, very specific and clear to me in saying the disruption you like to talk about is the invasion of my industry by a disruptive business model, which is different from a disruption like a new technology or what. It's a new business model. Well, traditionally, the big established firms will ignore the disruptive business model in its first stages until it grows and grows and becomes uh, big enough for them to pay attention to it. And then it raises the question, what should I do? And the first point I found with my research is that there is not a single response. You know, there is a variety of responses. One is you may like, let's say, in the airline industries, many of the airline companies like British Airways, let's say, decided that what the way to respond to EasyJet or the low cost airliners is to focus on their business model and try and improve it to such an extent as to make the EasyJets of the world not as relevant, not as important. So focusing on your business is one possible response. Another possible response is to adopt the disruptive business model and then you're faced with the challenge of how do I play two games at the same time? My traditional business model and the disruptive business model next to it. And it's a big challenge that one. We could talk about it if you want. A third possibility or a third response would be to say, okay, the new business model is the wave of the future. I'm going to abandon my existing business model and migrate to the new one. Fine. And a fourth one that we found in our research is what you just said, which is disrupt the disruptor. Find a way of not doing exactly what the disruptor is doing, but differentiate yourself in terms of how you respond to them. And you mentioned the media business and so on. If you look at, for example, newspaper business uh, as an example of media and so on, the first 10, 15 years of disruption, online distribution of news, what did they do? Basically, they were lost. They they, they just didn't know how to respond and so on. And yet, I think a company like Axel Springle in Germany, a company like the Guardian Newspaper Group in England, and now increasingly it's becoming evident that a company like the New York Times have found a beautiful way of responding to the disruptors. And what what is and by disrupting them themselves. And what is the, the response? The, you know, the, the traditional one that you see, for, for example, from the New York Times is, I'm going to give you lots of free content, 10 articles, let's say, for a period of time, and then there is a paywall that you pay if you want. 
it's one possible because it creates problems for the disruptors. What do you do now? Uh, you know, in the sense that I offer my content free, whereas the, the New York Times not only has the reach, but it offers it free plus a little bit of a paywall. Not everybody responded. The Guardian newspaper, for example, decided to focus on its ideology. It says, I'm, I am the voice of liberalism and I want to offer this voice to everybody in the world free of charge. I talked to the CEO of the Guardian and he said to me, look, I cannot put a paywall in my operation like uh, New York Times because I want to maximize the number of people I reach to offer them the liberal voice and so on. So I decided not to put a paywall. Well, how do I succeed? How do I manage to make some money? One of the things he's done, I don't know if you've seen it, is that at the end of every, every online article in The Guardian, there's a little statement that says, if you uh, happen to be here, why don't you contribute to The Guardian and so on? Do you know how much money people contribute to The Guardian every year? No. Have a guess. How much would you think people would voluntarily a give? Average, I would guess people pay on average, and this may be a high estimate or it may be a very low estimate, but £10? It's more than that, actually. Really? Yes, yes. Per, people, per, per reader? Yes. Yeah, people sit there and say, what would be the yearly subscription for uh, for the, the Guardian? Whatever. I don't know. Well, I guess uh, the New York Times is about... Uh, what? Well, I per think year? Yeah, per, per year. year. I think it's like, it's 60, quite expensive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's, people do the calculation themselves and say... I want to read The Guardian. If they ask me to subscribe to it, it will have been, let's say, £100 a year. I'm going to give them £100 I guess time. the argument would be that the older readership base, they understand that, I mean, they're more used to paying for things. Yeah. Uh, as Like, if you compare it to, like, the olden ages or yeah. not even the olden ages, I sounded very young right now. But... Um, uh, <laughs> People used to pay for newspapers to be delivered to their houses. Yeah, so they, yeah. they're they used to paying for news. Yeah. My generation and the generation after me, they have grown up where the news is freely accessible yeah. on the web and they expect everything to be yeah. free because it's, you know, almost like a fundament of democracy that everyone should have yeah. access to the same kind of information. Yeah. So there's not, and I guess what the media would think is that, okay, how are we supposed to disrupt and convey to a generation that don't necessarily see the need to pay I see how Guardian uses the um, communication in the bottom of their articles to communicate that, but mm. I, I don't know how effective they are with the younger generations or if that appeals to Let the older generations. They are very effective. And you know why? Because even the younger generation, they are not paying for the news. That what they are doing. You know what they are doing? They are paying for a cause. They are paying for the liberal voice to be heard. They are afraid that the Guardian is representing my ideology and I need an ambassador. I need somebody to help prevent the right-wing ideology, let's say, that certain politicians are preaching right now. And the Guardian is my Guardian angel. It's my, it's my ambassador that's helping me as an individual reader, helping my ideology survive. You see, they are not paying for the news. If you ask them, pay for the news, yeah, the younger generation will not pay. But they're not paying for They're paying for a cause. They're paying for a purpose. That's what they're paying. And, you know, this is what The Guardian has successfully done to associate itself with, you know, I'm not a newspaper. I'm not giving you news. No, I am helping you fight the liberal pattern against the right-wing dictators and so on and so forth. And you laugh, but it's a tremendously successful uh, strategy for them. I'm not going to give you the number. I know exactly the number, but <laughs> let me tell you, it's in the millions and millions, three 
digit million number that they get every year. And if you actually go and see, it's people who do it every year. It's not like I'm going to give it this year and then I'm not. Every year, they sit there and they write their check. And if you go actually, actually and go and look at the age distribution, it's not as heavily biased towards the older generation as you think. Young people, middle-aged people, old people who believe in the ideology that the Guardian newspaper is representing are willing to give to fight the good fight, as we say. So would that be kind of a disruptive business model being that the value that you're proposing is actually more ideological than it is, you know, the actual value, the value is the same or like the actual content that you're consuming is the same? Exactly. If I were to generalize, you have a traditional competitor who has a certain value proposition to the customer. says, buy my product for reason, value proposition one. What the disruptors do is they come in and what do they say to their customers? They say, in terms of value proposition one, which the, the traditional people are offering, I'm good enough and I'm superior to you in value proposition two, whatever that it may be usually low price. So, for example, in the consumer goods business, something like 85% of all products you buy in a supermarket are what we call private label. They are supermarket-owned brands. When I go into my supermarket in England, I have the choice of buying the Unilever brand of shampoo, let's say, or the Nestle one, or the Procter & Gamble, or the Sainsbury or Tesco brand. And what do I buy? I buy the Tesco one. Why? Because I sit there and say, you know, in terms of how good is it from my hair, it's similar to the Unilever brand or the Procter & Gamble brand, and it's half price. So this is what the disruptors do. They come in and what do they say? They say, in terms of whatever the established player is offering you, let's call it value proposition one, I'm good enough. I may not be as good as them, but I'm good enough, you know, and on top of it, I am better than them in Value proposition two. What is the disruptor disruptor strategy? You go in and say to your consumer, in terms of value proposition two, which is what the disruptor is offering, let's say price, I'm good enough. And guess what? I am superior to them in value proposition three. And value proposition three is what you come up with as a new reason why the consumer should buy your product. This is what the Guardian did. They said, in terms of news, in terms of price, I'm good enough. I'm not totally free, but you know, 50, 100 pounds a year, what's a big deal? It's not too much. But over and above that, I'm offering you something that the disruptors are not offering you. What is that? A purpose, value, and so on in terms of ideology and so on. It's very difficult to identify the third value proposition to offer and even more difficult to sell it to the consumers so they buy into it. You know, can I give you another example? 40 years ago, the Swiss watch industry was totally undermined by cheap watches. How did the Swiss respond? Did they make cheaper watches? No, they made the Swatch. The Swatch is the watch that saved the watch industry in Switzerland. And what is a Swatch? It's a watch that said, look, in terms of price, I'm good enough. I am not $10 like uh, Timex or Seiko. I'm $50. It's not a lot, $50. And on top of that, what is the third value proposition that I brought in? They were the first watch to introduce fashion and design for us to buy. You buy my watch, not only to tell you the time, but because it's fashionable. Every three, three months, like in the fashion industry, I come with new models. You buy them to wear them to look beautiful and so on. And that's why you have people that have 10, 20, 30 swatches, different colors, different designs. It's a fashion item. The swatch is the first watch that introduced fashionability and design into the watch. Louis Vuitton is the first company that introduced emotional benefit into the handbag. Think of it. Why should I buy the handbag? 
because it's nice, because for Louis Vuitton, because it makes you look so good. You think about it. They are say, Louis Vuitton says, I'm not selling handbags. I am selling dreams. Dreams. Think about that. Whoever came up with that idea, first of all, is clever, but more importantly, to convince the customer that they should be willing to pay a thousand euros to buy a dream in a handbag, that is the innovation. So it's easy enough to come up with the value proposition, but selling it to consumers so that they buy into it, that's tricky. Wow. Uh, yeah. And I keep, I'm, I'm, as you said that about Louis Vuitton, I keep thinking, you know, oh, what should ours be? I'm building a company myself. And I'm like, yeah. what are we what are we selling here? Um, and that gave me a lot to think about, hopefully, yeah. uh, the rest of our listeners as well. So uh, let's revert back to leadership for a second, mm. because um, during your extensive career looking at innovation, you found that continued success depends on a leader's willingness to take risk, yeah. even when the business seems to be going really well. Mm. And you argued that when a business is going well, that is the right time to yes. start thinking about renewing themselves yeah. because if they sail on the glory days for yeah. too long until the business is downscaling, that's when it's too late. Yes. So what do you tell leaders in the leading tech companies today? How are you able to convince them yeah. that the time to act is no. now? There is a clever way to do it and a stupid way to do it. And I'm afraid <laughs> to say that 99% of companies do it the stupid way. But before I, t- I tell you how to do it the clever way, let me re-emphasize to people why they should question and challenge and reinvent themselves when things are good, not when they're in a crisis. The analogy you have to think about is think you are on safari in Africa. You're out there observing the animals and suddenly the lion attacks you. It's coming your way and you have five seconds to live. What would you do? And what people do? They freeze or they panic and they run. The important thing to do is, did they think about their response? Did they sit there and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. The lion is about to attack me. What are the possible responses that I have here? One response is I fight back with the lion. Another response is I run. Another response is I don't fight, I don't run. I pick my husband or wife, throw them to the lion and then run and so on. The thing is, people when they are in a panic like that, they don't think. We know from research that mm-hmm. when people are in a crisis situation, like the lion attacks them, they become very short-term oriented, they become very reactive, they stop thinking. They let their gut instinct take over. Oh, I run. Oh, I panic. This is what happens in a company when they're in a crisis. They are, they are going bankrupt. It's like, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? It's like the lion attacking. And whatever they do usually ends up in failure. Why? Because it's short-term oriented, it's myopic, it's not thinking, it's reactive and so on. Don't wait for the lion to attack to do the questioning. Do it when you're successful. Most people appreciate that. They say, okay, okay, I'm going to do it when I'm successful. The evidence is nobody does it. Nobody. It's like me. My doctor keeps telling me, you have to come back for a checkup every year. Don't wait for the disease. And when do I go? When I get sick. Even though intellectually I know I should do it, I say, yeah, yeah, I feel fine. I don't have the time to go to the doctor. And what if the doctor finds something bad with me? I'm, I'm not going. And so on. It's the same with companies. At the rational level, they all say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to question and challenge the business model before the crisis. They all say that. They never do it. Mm. The few that try to do it, they say, okay, when I'm doing well, I need to create a burning platform. I need to create a sense of urgency. That's how I'm going to create urgency in the organization to act. And how do they do it? They try to do it with fear. They try to scare people into actions. And if you go and look at psychology research, what it tells us is that fear or scaring people has a very short-term effect. If you go to people and say, stop smoking or you're going to die, they stop smoking. But for how long? A few days, a few months, and then pretty soon they go back to smoking, even though they know they're going to die. And so fear is one of those tactics that gives you a short-term 
effect, but it doesn't last. And unfortunately, that is the stupid way that most companies use to create urgency in their companies when things are good. They go to their people and say, okay, we've had a very successful year, but, but, look at all the disruptions happening around us. Oh my God, oh my God. Artificial intelligence, digital disruption, uh, virtual reality. Oh, we better change. Otherwise, (laughs) you're going to go bankrupt. What is that? That is a fear tactic. It has a short-term effect on people, but it doesn't last. That is a stupid way to create urgency in organization. And that brings me to my the answer to your question. What is the correct, clever way to give? And I'm not just saying that. I can give you the psychology research on the The correct way we know is that you have to give people, first of all, something positive to aim for. Like, we need to change, guys. Why? Give them a positive vision to look for. But more importantly, anybody can come with a positive vision. Even my grandmother can come with a positive vision. More importantly is sell that vision, that positive reason to your people to win their emotional acceptance, emotional commitment. Not not rational acceptance, emotional commitment. So creating positive urgency, in my opinion, or creating a positive sense of urgency implies two things. Number one, give them something positive to aim for. Number two, sell it to your people to win emotional commitment. And I can get into a discussion of how do you sell now, but all I'm asking people to think is, how long did it take you to win the heart of your loved one? Your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. How long did it take you? Oh, for me, it took about two hours. (laughs) (laughs) I see. Well, you are the exception. (laughs) I guess it depends, right? On every single person in a relationship. It's all individual. You've heard about love at first sight, haven't you? Uh, I was lucky. Yeah, okay. But, you know, is it love or is it something else that uh, real love? We're engaged today, so. Yeah. I think. What about you? How long did it take for you? A long time. A long (laughs) time. A lot of strategies as well, not just to add. You know, most people say they takes time and it, it, it's not like you take your loved one out on a date and at the end of the evening it's like, oh, I'm so in love with you. I'm going to marry you and have children with you and so on. It, it very rarely happens like that, okay? <laughs> okay. So sometimes maybe in your case and so on, but very rarely. It takes time for people to truly love you for who you are. And I, can I generalize from this a little bit? I was giving a speech uh, at a high school of girls, uh, graduating girls, 18-year-olds. And the day before I prepared my speech, graduation speech for these 18-year-old girls, and my, my, my speech was, find your passion in life, find your passion. And thankfully, the night before my speech, I read an academic paper of two psychologists who found what? They found that when you give people the advice, find your passion, it's bad advice. Why? Because when you tell people, find your passion, what they understand is, I have a passion. It's somewhere out there. All I have to do is find it. If I look long enough, I will find it. And what do they do? They look for it. And if they don't find it, what do they say? They say, oh, I've been unlucky. This is not fair. And they give up. The advice you should give people is not find your passion. The advice is develop your passion. Because that's how passion starts. You start with something you like. You do it a little bit. You like it a little bit more. You do it a little bit more. You begin to become good at it. People give you compliments like, oh, you're playing the piano really well. Oh, you're dancing the ballet really well. You you become very proud. You do it a little bit more. Then you say, I begin to love it. And then after a while, oh, it's my passion. In other words, you develop your passion. 
The same with your priest charming. We tell girls, go and find your priest charming. And they go out and they look and they can never find it. You know why? <laughs> because Prince Charming doesn't exist. We have to develop Prince Charming. You know, you find somebody you like and slowly over time, through experiences together, through sacrifices together, you say, you know, I don't like him anymore. I love him now. And after a while, oh my God, he's my Prince Charming and so on. But you develop that Prince Charming. You don't just walk in the street and run into him and so on and so forth. Anyway, we deviated from the business discussion just to say the same thing about uh, with uh, disruption or with creating a sense of urgency, we have to find a way of selling things to people at an emotional level. And it's very difficult. I think that was excellent advice. And I think subconsciously, that's how I've been living my life because I, I didn't have a passion up until I was maybe 21. I studied yeah. everything. I studied psychology. Yeah. I studied business. I studied journalism. I studied nutrition, um, yeah. acting. Yeah. And then it wasn't before technology that I was like, okay, I think this is pretty fun. Yeah. And then I developed that. And the same thing goes for men, I guess. I dated everything on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> and then we don't finally... want to know. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we, I told you we would be open in this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, and then you find your Prince Charm. But that's how that's the advice you should yeah. be given. Experiment. Try things out. You know, you don't know. Today, in today's world, for example, I have many nephews and nieces now who are turning 18 and they want to go to university. And you ask them, well, what do you want to study at university? How would they know? How would they know that the answer is, oh, I want to study law. Why? Because my father is a lawyer. I want to study medicine. Why? Because as it sounds like a, a noble profession to do. But have you tried medicine? You may go into a, a classroom and the moment you see blood, you may faint. You know, it's not because it's a noble profession. You have to try things before you find something that you really like. And once you like it, you do it again. You get positive reinforcement. You get compliments. You do like it a little bit more. And eventually, it becomes a passion. It, you never find it like this. So you shouldn't just be a leader for executives. You should be a leader for people from, <laughs> uh, I guess, five years old and up. I like to bring examples from uh, our personal life to highlight points. For example, you know, I talk about values. Values are very important in guiding human behavior. No question about it. You know, if I ask you, you, you are in a bus and it's full of people and an elderly lady walks in and she looks around and there are no seats, what would you do? And you'll say, probably stand up and offer your seat. What drove that behavior? It's your value. It's your value that said it's the right thing to do, for example. So we know that values drive human behavior. But where are the values that drive human behavior? They are in our hearts. The values that guide our children, where are they? They are in their hearts. Now, did you write these values down and put them on their bedroom wall when they are growing up? People say, no. Hey, how do you instill values in people's hearts? Through your day-to-day -day behavior, by showing them through example what is the right thing to do. Is this what we do in companies? We do the exact opposite in companies. In companies, we hire a consultant. They spend a lot of time and a lot of money to develop a piece of paper that has on it five, six values, generic ones, bullshit ones that nobody really remembers. And then what do we do? We frame them and we put them on the walls of the company. And we say, these are the values of this company. Most employees don't even know what the bloody things are, let alone be guided by those values. We don't do these stupid things at home. Why do we do it at work? Why? It's stupid, isn't it? You, if you put it in, your, in the bedroom of your children, do you think it will have any effect? No. Why would it have an effect on employees? It has no effect at all. <laughs> You know, and so it's, it's such an interesting way of putting it because I haven't thought about it like that before. But it's true; it's, it's completely true. true. Yeah. This thing about selling people, uh, selling people on a, to win emotional commitment, applies to many things. Purpose. 
Everybody, for example, talks about we need to have a purpose. We need, we need every, you know, here in Scandinavia, everybody's like, we need a purpose. And so on. Oh, I, I feel like that's just as American as it is Scandinavia. Yeah. It's, it's big. Everywhere you go in the world now is purpose, 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 purpose and so purpose, purpose. Now, the question is, is purpose important? Of course it is. I mean, just to give you an example, you're walking down the street and you run into three employees, three workers whose job it is to crush stone. And you ask the first one, what do you do here? And he says, well, I'm crushing stone. That's my job. And you ask the second one, what do you do here? And he says, I'm crushing stone to make some money for my family. And you ask the third one, what are you doing here? And he says, I am crushing stone to build the cathedral. Which employee would you like to have in your company? The first one, the second or the third? I must say the third one who is, has a big picture. He's building a cathedral. He's mobilized. And so that's the power of purpose. Power, but it mobilizes people. It galvanizes. So we know that purpose is important in people's lives. The younger generation in particular, if you ask them, what are you looking for in a job now? It's not money, it's not, it's purpose. Why am I here? And so on. Purpose is important. Yet, 99.9% of all purposes out there are useless. They are, they are, it's a waste of space. <laughs> and you know why? Because the purposes that are important and useful are the ones that people put into them. They, put it, they buy into it and they believe in it and they fight for that purpose because they believe in it. The question then is, why do they buy into it? Do they wake up in the morning and say, yes, I'm going to buy into this purpose? No, they bought into it because somebody took the time to sell it to them. So selling things for to win emotional, important, uh, emotional commitment also applies not only to sense of crisis, but also to purposes. It's not enough to develop a beautiful sounding, sexy sounding purpose. Why are we in business? To make the world a better place. Oh, what kind of bullshit is that? You say that to people and they vomit afterward. <laughs> to change the world, to make it. The important thing is not to come up with a sexy sounding slogan like that. The important thing is to come up with it and then sell it to people to win their hearts into it, to believe in it, not at the, at the heads, not at the rational level, but in their hearts. And if they believe in it, then they will fight with passion and motivation and they will enjoy their work because it's their passion. They come here not because it's work, but because they're serving their purpose in life and so on. And how many companies do you know that spend time selling their purpose to their, to their people? How many do? Apple, maybe. Even then, or Facebook, people say Facebook or connecting people. I mean, yeah, you're Google, yeah. No, but the world's you see, information accessible. we mention these companies because they are so successful. Yeah. Wait until they get into trouble, and then you tell me if they really have a powerful purpose that people put into it. The issue well, is they are in trouble, I guess, but we still remember their purpose, even though we yeah. also remember their other values. Facebook's being um, be bold and break things. Uh, Google's being do no harm or do yeah. no evil. So, yeah. I mean, I guess and you, you do remember them. them. Well, Facebook, <laughs> you know, we're stealing your data for our profits. I mean, come on. Well, we do use the... Pro so, I, I'm... This is a different discussion, but I am iffy of that whole, like, we're stealing your data for free. We are using their product for free as well. So, it's like, they're, if you're not paying with money... You, Don't complain that they steal your data. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> this is... You know that this is happening. Or at least you should know. Well, now in that people know, we'll see how many of them stay with them. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, people are not maybe staying on Facebook, but they're still staying on Instagram and WhatsApp, which is yeah. also owned by Facebook. So, well, this is a completely different debate. Yeah. But what do you think are the uh, generally biggest challenges that uh, challenges that managers are facing today that they have to address, but maybe lack the courage or knowledge yeah. or even just the mandate to yeah. be able to deal with? Well, there are issues at a strategic level, but I like to focus on the human 
level, which is, uh, I always tell people, compare how your parents raise you when you were a kid with how you are raising your children now and has anything changed? And immediately people say, yes, of course. And that's how leadership has changed. For example, 40 years ago when I was growing up in Cyprus, if my father or mother said to me, Costas, do this, I did that. I did not sit there and debate why am I doing this and what is my sense of purpose or whatever. Today, you tell your child, do this, you know what they say? Well, why? Let's let's discuss this tonight <laughs> over the dinner table with mommy and, and so on and so forth. But And it, it, that means basically you as a father, you as a mother, you have to deal with your children in a totally different way. Hierarchy is no longer a source of power or authority and so on at home and at work. Hierarchy has disappeared, has disappeared. Well, not completely, but you know what I mean. If if I'm used to sending a tweet, let's say, to, to the president of the United States and getting a response, of course I'm going to send a tweet to the CEO of my company and expect a response and so on. And if they don't respond saying I'm your boss and I don't respond, then I say this is not the right kind of company. So at the, at the leadership level, I think the, the role of leaders have fundamentally has fundamentally changed. We're no longer bosses. We are now coaches. We have to coach the employees in a certain way. We are no longer, you know, army generals that order people do this and do that. Now we're more like architects. Architects in the sense that the biggest role of a leader is to create the environment, to construct an environment in the organization that brings the best out of its people, a working environment, in other words. Increasingly, the control mechanism is no longer rules and regulation. It's values. It's values that you don't just write them on the wall. You sell them to people to win their emotional, they buy into it and so on. So the the role of leadership, I think, has fundamentally changed. Another thing is increasingly it's not about winning rational acceptance of people. It's about winning emotional commitment of people. And all these, they sound subtle changes in leadership, but they are difficult challenges for people, especially older people, especially men. You go to a CEO who is 50 or 55, and you say, look, your task now is not to be the general, it's to be the coach. Your task now is not to have rules and regulations, it's to have strong values to guide people. Your task now is not to motivate them with money and promotion, but with a purpose. Your task now is not to get their rational acceptance, but their emotional commitment. Even when they accept it at the rational level, most people have trouble saying, can I help with it? I'm the boss, they better do what I, when I was, an employee, I used to do all these things. Why can't they not do it as well now? Well, they, they, it's a different generation. It's a different world. People have to change how they think and how they manage people. And I think it's it's a difficult, difficult transition for many human beings to make. Especially men or? I think especially men, especially this last part about emotional community. For women, it's easier. Well, not easier. It's more in their DNA, I think. And it's, it's just, it's more second nature to them that they, because women are not afraid to show emotion. The women are not afraid to, um, you know, embrace someone and cry in front of someone and so on. Whereas men, women to cry in front of other people, it's a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of, you know, if I'm a leader, I don't cry. For a woman to express vulnerability, to say I made a mistake, it's more natural. Oh, a man, oh, no, 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 I'm perfect. I didn't make any mistakes and so on. So it's these kind of changes that are now required from men and women. And I think women will, uh, will find the transition a little bit easier because they are more used to this kinds of behaviors and mindsets and attitudes, mm. I think, than men. But, you know, 
maybe the solution will be that this generation of men leaders, they will retire and die and the younger generation will come in with hopefully these skills and these attitudes already in their DNA. It shouldn't be such a major transition for them. No, and I think we all have them in us. I mean, vulnerability and empathy and all of these kind of traits. So it's just maybe they've been more acceptable for women to develop yeah. um, than they have been a man. So it's based yeah. on like society's expectations and gender exactly. stereotypes rather yeah. than built into their DNA. And you think this is difficult in the uh, in the Scandinavian culture, cut to my Mediterranean culture and see what is expected of boys and men and so on. It's much more difficult in other cultures of the world. Yeah, no, I can imagine. But we, we still deal with that too in, in Norway. It's uh, there, there are societal expectations yeah. to what women and men are like. And we do treat them differently um, based on, you know, their gender, even though they yeah. might be, you know, the exact same person as we've seen in many different yeah. research studies. But finally, I would like to ask for your advice for managers and leaders on how they should not only survive, but succeed in the disruption right now. I mean, what are your top three pieces of advice to our listeners? Well, number one, the change you require as a leader, you already went through it at home. I mean, think of it. The way we manage our children now, you know, it's different from 20 years ago. Somehow we went through a change in how we raise and manage our children and so on. Now, you went through that change at home. Did you go to business school to study how to become a better father or mother in the disruptive world? Because it is these consumers you're talking about, these employees you're talking about, they live in your house. They're your children. You know, yes, when they leave the home, they go and become employees and they go and become consumers, but they live in your house every day. So somehow, miraculously, you succeeded in transforming yourself as a human being to manage, to lead these uh, new consumers, new employees in your home environment. All you have to do is learn from that experience and say, what did I do at home and how can I translate that in the work environment? That's one thing that I will encourage people to think. Number two, we live in a very disruptive and fast-changing world. What does that tell me? The skills, the education, the competences that you have learned in school when you are 18, 19, 20, they will serve you well for one, two, three years until the age of 25. After that... <coughs> You need new skills. You need to go and retrain yourself. And the new skills you're going to learn when you're 25, they're going to serve you for another two, three, four years, which means what? When you're 35, you need to go and retrain and reskill yourself. And it goes on like this until you die. In today's world, the idea that, I mean, my generation, I'm a baby boomer, you know, the idea was that when I was 18, I went to university, I studied for three, four, five years. And then age 25, I went to the workforce. The skills I had then will serve me well until I retire, 40, 50 years. That world doesn't exist anymore. Every two, three years, we need to learn new skills. So continuous education, continuous reskilling is not just, you know, a, a luxury anymore. It's a requirement for anybody who wants to succeed. And find your own way to retool and reskill. There are many online courses now available, many videos or TED videos and so on, many conferences you need to go to on a yearly basis, eh? you know, as often as you can to learn about the skills. And then the third thing I think that I will advise people to think about is the, the best advice I ever received in my life from my parents was, look, life is very easy. All you have to do is treat people the way you want to be treated yourself. It, it's no rocket science. You know, I don't my My mother did not give me a laundry list of these are the 10 things you have to do in life courses and you're going to be successful. You know, she only told me this. This is the only guiding principle you should keep in your mind. 
treat people the way you want to be treated yourself. And if you truly believe that, if you internalize that and you behave accordingly, you will get out of situations, even bad ones, much better than others. You will handle difficult situations much better than others because you're guided by a principle there that you know at the end of it, it's a, it's a true principle, it's a viable principle, and it more often than not is going to lead you in the right direction. These will be my three pieces of advice. And if you were to give yourself one piece of advice as a 20-year-old person... <laughs> Which I'm well, not. Uh, no, not, yeah. not anymore, I can tell. Um, but uh, what would you tell you? To myself, I will say th this idea of uh, reskilling and retooling myself... Uh, as 20 know, years old? Yeah, again and again. I mean, to, as a 20-year-old, uh, reskilling and retooling... But, but not only, you know, both had, uh, skills are not only, you know, mechanical skills or electrical skills, also cultural skills. So for a 20-year-old, for example, I would say be a better listener. You know how kids are these today. They don't listen. What, their attention span is 30 seconds. They, they are, <laughs> they, within two seconds, they switch off and, and so on and so forth. You know, you go to dinner with them and they sit there and the first thing they do, they pull out their uh, mobile phones and they are onto their uh, chit-chat, uh, Facebook or Instagram or whatever, you know. You, you cannot expect other people to listen to you because that's what 20 years uh, do. They, they, they say, I have a right to be heard of and have, you know, I demand that you listen to me. Yes, but you have to listen too. So when I say retool yourself, step back as a 20-year-old and say, look, in my generation, what are the big weaknesses that we face now as mm. human beings and how can I improve in those areas, like listening to people, for example, like improving your patient level. You know, I mean, you cannot expect things within seconds. You have to say, be patient and so on. That's the mm. kind of things I'll give to a 20-year-old. Oh, that's very insightful. I think uh, in today's day and age, the best gift you can give someone is their undivided attention. Because yeah. it's uh, harder than ever. We're competing with the entire world at every given time. <laughs> you know <laughs> what least... is the average attention of human beings these days? How long they pay attention to something before they switch off? I want to say 30 seconds. 30 seconds. 30 about seconds. Right. And people are saying it's decreasing now and so on. 30 seconds. But what does that do to productivity? Well, who knows? What has that done to your listeners, I wonder? We lost them half an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think, well, I at least hope, at least with you, I think they stuck with us because this okay. has been incredibly, incredibly interesting. Where should people go to follow you, Kostas, if they want to listen to you more? There are, I have uh, many wonderful books that people should go out and buy. But uh, really, I mean, if you Google my name, for example, on YouTube, you're going to find zillions of videos that I didn't even know existed on YouTube. <laughs> people, I go to conferences, I go to places and I give speeches and people make videos and put them up. So that would be one way for, I suppose, for people to listen to me. Uh, and so on. The other is to send me an email at London Business School with specific questions they may have, and I'd be happy to respond. Wow, this just felt like the best lecture ever. Thank you so <laughs> much. This was thank really, really interesting you, and funny. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And uh, thank you to the audience for staying with us. Let's hope so. <laughs> yeah, thanks. You're listening to Future Forecast, a podcast produced by Oslo Business Forum and myself. Tune in in two weeks for more interesting insights on technology, leadership and sustainability with some of the most influential experts and leaders from around the world. If you like this podcast and you're wondering how can I support them, please take a second to give us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts because it does really help. And if you have a friend or colleague you think might appreciate it, every share counts. Or you can just share it on social media. Tag me on Instagram, Isabel Reynas. Talk to you in two weeks.